0: good evening everyone and welcome to this forum for philosophy event on the topic who's a good boy now despite what the title may suggest this event is not really about evaluating dogs uh, or boys it's really about are they evaluating us do some animals evaluate each other do they have a sense of right and wrong a sense of fair and unfair, a concept of ought or ought not? Do they ever participate in moral thought, moral reasoning, moral judgment? Do they feel moral emotions like shame or guilt? We'll be thinking about how these questions can be approached scientifically and what the limits of our ability to approach them scientifically might be. And we'll be asking if some animals are capable of moral thought, what would that mean for the way we treat them? Would it mean that we should start thinking of these animals as people or persons with rights or not? And would it mean that there might be circumstances in which we should hold an animal responsible for something it's done? And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three brilliant experts on this topic, Kristen Andrews from York University, Canada, Susanna Monceau from the Messerley Research Institute in Vienna, and Sarah Brosnan from Georgia State University in America. And let's start with a question for all of you, I think. Is there a particular example of animal behavior that first made you take seriously the idea that but a sense of morality might not be uniquely human. It's so often described as something that might set humans apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Is there an example where you first started to doubt that? An example that made you think maybe they do have a sense of right or wrong or fair or unfair, ought or ought not. Let's start with you, Sarah. Sure. Thanks, Jonathan.
1: Um, and it's a pleasure to be here with Kristen and Susanna. Uh, I actually do have an example. Um, when I was a young grad student, my first semester, I was spending a lot of time watching the monkeys I was working with. They were capuchin monkeys. And one of the things we do is we feed them treats because we love them. And so I was outside trying to get peanuts to the entire group. And the alpha male always tries to come up and get them. And he typically can because he's the most dominant individual. So what you do is you hold one peanut way over here while you're feeding the lower ranking individuals over there. And Ozzy, this male, uh, wanted peanuts or want, was trying to get more peanuts than he was getting, and so he started going and bringing me other things from the enclosure. So first he brought me a piece of monkey chow and he tried to trade it with me, and then he brought me an orange peel, and then he went inside so he couldn't see me anymore to where they had their fruit and vegetable tray, and he got a whole chunk of a navel orange, so it was fairly large. I think it was a quarter of an orange, and he brought it out and he gave it to me. So I did give him the peanut. Um, but what got me thinking was I was fairly certain that if I had offered Ozzy a peanut and a quarter of a naval orange, he would have picked the orange. So I was wondering why he cared so much about the peanut. Now, leaving aside the fact that essentially both of those foods were available at this point, he could have gotten more oranges, What occurred to me was he might have wanted the peanut because everybody else was getting it. So his subjective value of these different foods was influenced by by what everyone else was getting. And if that was true, that led to the possibility that he was irritated because it wasn't fair, because I was feeding them peanuts and I was not feeding him peanuts. Um, So at that point I actually adjusted what I was working Mm -hmm. on for my dissertation to start trying to test that question and see whether or not there were at least parts of the sense of fairness that we could look at in other species.
0: So that was the moment where you've got oranges, peanuts, and they seem to think not just which, which thing is the best, but which would it be fair for me to get, given yeah. what the other monkeys have got.
1: And that's the key, given what the other ones are getting. I, he seemed to really care about what everyone else had.
0: You want to tell us how you then went on to go and investigate whether they do have a sense of fairness?
1: Yeah so it's ongoing because the sense of fairness is complex and there are many different aspects of it but at that point i was doing a dissertation looking at value perception and i had them trained the different tokens so pieces of rock, pieces of pipe, things and so forth were worth different foods and some of the foods they liked better than others. And I had them trading with me to see whether or not they would trade rationally to get the foods that they liked best um, over those that they liked less well. So I set up a modification of this where I had two monkeys from the same group sitting side by side and they had to trade a token with me and then they got rewarded a food reward. And so in the baseline condition, they both got a piece of cucumber, which is something that monkeys like. I mean, they'll happily eat cucumber, but in the experimental condition, one monkey would trade and get a grape and then the other one would trade and get a cucumber. So let's say I'm giving Kristen a grape I'm giving Susanna a cucumber. I wanna see how Susanna responds to that cucumber when Kristen's getting a grape as compared to when they're both getting cucumber. And then we have to control for things like contrast effects. So is Susanna just upset because suddenly she sees the grape? So what happens when I show both of them a grape but give them a cucumber and so forth?
0: I'm so confused now. The monkeys aren't actually called Kristen and Susanna, right? That's
1: No, but they do have names.
0: What <laughs> were what they really they, called?
1: Uh, the, uh, well, we have Ozzy and Nancy and Lulu and Winnie and Lily. I mean, we have lots of monkeys. <laughs>
2: I promise, Susanna, that if I'm getting a grape and you're getting a cucumber, I'll stop working until you get a grape too, all right? <laughs>
1: so that makes me different than a capuchin monkey because chimpanzees sometimes do that, but capuchin monkeys do not. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So the chimpanzees sometimes go on strike. They sometimes appear to be showing solidarity with each other.
1: Yeah, what we would call advantageous inequity aversion. So I notice when I'm getting more than you. So capuchins notice plenty well when they're getting less than someone else. But how do you respond when you're getting more? The capuchins don't seem to care. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact... Kristen would be more likely to refuse her grape when Susanna is getting a cucumber than when Susanna is also getting a grape, suggesting that she notices. I mean, we don't know why. I can't ask them. Maybe she's worried about Susanna's reaction later on. Maybe she notices that it's unfair. Um, But we do know that they change their behaviour.
0: Have you ended up convinced? Are Are you now convinced that the monkeys and the chimps really do have a sense of fairness?
1: I'm certainly convinced that they care about equity. So sense of fairness depends on how you define it. So in humans, when we talk about a sense of fairness, we really mean this sort of global, culturally understood group norm of what you should do, even with variants. I mean, I may have a slightly different view of what's fair than you do, but we still have an ideal that, for instance, if you're doing the same job, you should get paid the same amount of money, regardless of what sex you are or what skin color you have or whatnot. And in order to have that, You have to be able to sit down and come up with what your group norms are. And group norms can change as people have these conversations and change what they think is correct. And that's challenging for an animal because even though they have very sophisticated communication, they can't form these norms in the same way that we can so I certainly think they have elements of the sense of fairness. They notice when they get less than another, some species are noticing when they get more than another, but it's challenged and, and they'll quit cooperating if they're getting less too. So it does actually impact their behavior, but it's challenging to know whether or not they have the same sort of sense of fairness or even could since they can't discuss what they want their norms to be the way we can.
0: Yeah. So of course they're not verbal in the way we would be in that situation. So your work is, is largely about trying to reduce the sense of fairness down to its basic ingredients. You know, how do you react when two different rewards, two different types of food are unequal? Do you get incredibly angry or do you just not, just not care? And what about when someone else gets an unequal reward? do you, do you get very angry or do you just not care? Do you think that's the, the core of the sense of fairness?
1: we and what I think is that this core is present in lots of species and so I'm interested in how it evolved and became this sort of full-blown sense of fairness for lack of a better word that we see in humans Um, and how what were the initial starting points and what sorts of environmental ecological social context would have influenced it Um, I mean one of the big problems we have is I can measure animals who are upset enough to behaviorally respond But that doesn't mean that they don't notice even when they don't respond. So in some sense, we're giving the animals a stricter or more stringent test than we are often with humans, um, because humans Mm. may accept something and then tell you that they took it, but they didn't think it was fair. And that's not what we're measuring in the animals.
0: Mm. Yeah, Kristin, let's bring you in on this. What's your example? What's your behavior that first made you think there might be morality in animals?
2: Well, one of the first behaviors I saw was, I think, another example of um, what might be construed of as a a sense of fairness, but it's not a fairness about equal pay for equal work. It's a sense of the same rule applies to everyone. Um, Now, maybe there's no rule here. This is an anecdote. So when I was in grad school, I was not working with monkeys because I was a philosopher, but I had roommates who had chow chow dogs. And these two dogs were very well behaved. They weren't my dogs. I knew them, you know, I knew them well enough because I was living with them. And one day, the smaller dog pooped on the carpet. And right after the smaller dog pooped on the carpet, the larger dog nipped her. (laughs) And we thought, what? (laughs) Are you protesting this um, violation of the rule that you're not supposed to poop in the house, that you should be going outside? Um, So it, that's when I first started being really interested in this question. Obviously, there are other ways of interpreting that behavior, um, but it's a potential, it's a potential explanation, a potential interpretation of um, a response of, hey, you violate this rule and I'm punishing you for it. Mm. But then later, you know, when I was doing work in, um, in, and that's just one example of, potential morality, right? So here's a rule, you broke it and you get punished or some somebody responds to it. But there are other ways of kind of conceiving of morality or thinking about morality in terms of helping and pro behaviors. And so I have another example that I think is really interesting um, with some orangutans I was working with when um, I went to Borneo with my colleague Ann Russin. So she, was, she has a research site, had a research site with rehab orangutans. So these are little babies who lost their moms, toddlers and so on. And they go out to a forest school every day and try to learn forest tasks like how to swing from trees without breaking them and how to process food and how to navigate in, in the uh, the forest. Um, and but one of the orangutans was named Aldrin and he was really sickly and he didn't like to go up into the trees. He just kind of stayed with the babysitters. And one day we were all out in forest school. and the orangutans saw a turtle. And Darwin even wrote about this, that orangutans are terrified of turtles. So the orangutans all ran up in the tree and it was a lot of chaos. And then finally things settled down and they were coming down from the trees and it was time to hike back to uh, the forest cage where they spend the night. Um, But then we found out that Aldrin wasn't with the group, but also Checheb wasn't with the group. And Checheb was one of the the alpha um, orangutans uh, four-year-old alpha orangutan of this group. Um, So the babysitters went back to see what was happening and what they saw was Checheb was in a tree closer to the rest of the group but next to Aldrin. Aldrin had never come down from his tree after being scared and he looked back and then he moved, Checheb looked back at Aldrin and then moved to the next tree. Aldrin came down from that tree and went up the next tree Chachab, when he saw that, looked back, went to the falling tree, and led Aldrin back to the group bit by bit, which also was a, quite an interesting, you know, example of behavior that seemed to show um, unselfish concern for another member of the group. And then yeah. when when Aldrin got to the group, Chachab just walked off. There was no like, "Thank you very much for your service," or <laughs> yeah.
0: um, that was it. So it shows sympathy, you think, and bondedness i suppose
2: between yeah perhaps them. yeah they weren't yeah. really good friends i wouldn't say that aldrin and chechub were friends because Checheb was out off with the other more active healthy orangutans um and aldrin kind of only hung out with the humans
0: mm. um, so pity pity maybe. for a weak member of the group
2: i mean it's hard enough to know what the right word is when you're describing this about human behavior and it gets it gets even trickier when you're asking about orangutans Arang- or dogs or monkeys. It's
0: interesting that you're picking up on a very different ingredient of a sense of morality, I suppose, that mm-hmm. we had Sarah talking about the sense of fairness. This is something completely different, isn't it? So just feeling sympathy, just caring about what happens to someone else. I mean, that could be very widespread indeed, couldn't it? If you think of and ants and all of the social creatures there are in the world potentially the, these different ingredients of a sense of morality could come apart and have very different distributions
2: yeah i'd agree i think that the term morality is um not entirely well defined and probably is more of an umbrella term and there are lots of different things that we can find under it and the best way mm. to examine whether animals have morality is to figure out what these different elements are and then ask more specific questions about those elements.
0: Mm. Which elements do they have? You know, do they have a basic sense of fairness? Do they have basic sense of sympathy and so on? mm -hmm. Let's bring in Susanna then. And um, Susanna, what's your example?
3: Well, actually it might also be an example of like another aspect of morality. Because uh, I'm kind of I've been interested in more kind of low level morality or um, morality that's dependent on very kind of the intellectualized capacity. So not so much um, sense of fairness or moral judgment or rules, uh, moral norms that seem to be a bit more demanding than um, other capacities. And so an example that always comes to mind um it's not something that got me started starting to think about morality because it's something that I witnessed during my PhD and my PhD was on animal morality but um, it's I think the the first time where I saw something happen live so I had read like a lot of convincing um, anecdotes and um, studies and so on but this was the first time that I witnessed something that I thought this is an example of animal morality. And um, it happened to me while I was living in Miami um, during my PhD and I lived with several dogs. And one of them was this puppy who was a pit bull called Chico and he was absolutely fearless. And he was also, I mean, he was very, very naughty and he was always trying to um, wreak havoc wherever he went. And there was this huge, really massive American pit bull no, American Bulldog, sorry, called Liquor. who really he we we would say that he looked like a cow because he was really, really huge. And it's he was called quite liquor. G- liquor, yeah. He was quite a
0: with a, C- a CK. CK. Wow, okay.
3: Um and he was quite um well, I he was he was um uh, he looked quite scary, let's put it that way. Um and but uh, Chico, little Chico, was not afraid of liquor at all. And one of his favorite things to do in the world was to bite liquor. And he would bite him in the face, around the mouth, and on the ears and everything. And liquor was so patient, so, so patient with Chico. I mean, clearly it must have hurt, you know, the little pointy puppy teeth that he had at the time. Uh, imagine that on your face. And um Liquor was clearly kind of annoyed by it, but he was so gentle. He would just kind of, you know, move his head and like gently push him away or, or turn away. Never did he grow, growl or bear his teeth or bark at Chico. Never, ever. So I thought um, that this was an example of tolerance or patience towards a puppy. Um and I'm pretty sure that liquor would not have reacted that way if it had been an adult dog biting him in the face. So it's a
0: different way of manifesting concern for others, maybe, but through through tolerance of yeah. their mistakes.
3: Yeah. So lately, I've I've come uh, I've become very interested in the issue of touch and how animals navigate um, their touch interactions because um, touch um, is well, it's there to kind of watch over our body. And and it's um, a sign that our bodies are vulnerable, right? That's one of the reasons why we have a sense of touch. And um, I think it's very interesting to look at how animals navigate each other's vulnerability that way. And it's something that hasn't received that much attention and might kind of be more of a low level kind of morality, but that's also interesting. And it can also show this kind of concern for others.
0: Yeah, great. Should we think about a, a different question, which is about how we study this sort of thing scientifically? Because it seems we all have these experiences, particularly when dogs are involved or monkeys or other mammals. And mammals seem to have this um, empathy eliciting quality in us that we, we, we read a lot of mentality into them in a way we arguably don't with some other animals like fish and crabs and lobsters and so on how do we start building a a science of animal morality that that goes beyond those initial reactions in the moment to try and study these things rigorously and scientifically and what are the main methodological challenges we face when we're really trying to do that and really trying to make an an evidence-based case for morality in animals and should we start with Sarah on this because you've been on, on the front line of this for a long time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I alluded to a lot of this earlier, but one of the challenges is we can't ask them. So we are reliant on behavioral responses or for most of us who do non-invasive work, maybe something like an eye tracker or looking at hormone levels. But you can't go in and say, how, how did you feel about that? I know you accepted that cucumber, but... You know, Susanna, did that make you upset? (laughs) So we have to design experiments where we see how they respond. And that inevitably means coming up with something that they're going to notice and that they're willing to respond to. For instance, we've done work looking at how responses to inequity vary based on the food reward and within subject studies, meaning that we're using the same animals repeatedly so we can compare their own responses to their previous ones. We find that they only respond to inequity when the food reward is relatively low value. So to put this in human terms, you might give up 50 cents if you're an American um, because somebody else got something more than you. But if it was $50, you probably wouldn't. You'd probably swallow your pride and take the money. Um, And so it's very difficult to figure out exactly where that is. It's a trial and error Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, And one of our big questions was, were some of the variability that we were seeing across studies due to the fact that we're all sort of trying to norm our food rewards based on what our particular animals like to eat, which varies as much among animals as it does among humans. Um, So trying to come up with these studies, trying to figure out how to have proper controls to rule out alternative explanations, is it just a contrast effect? Do they just want to see, want what they can see? And it's not that someone else actually has it. Um, And then I think the most critical component, I'm a big believer that a lot of these things expand well beyond the mammals. Um, I mean, certainly beyond the primates, but probably beyond the mammals as well. I mean, we know we're seeing evidence of some of this in in birds for instance, and I would guess that it goes further. and so what that means is we have to figure out how to ask the same questions in multiple different species, which is trickier than it sounds because every species has their own body plan. They have their own preferences. And how do you test a reptile that eats once a week if you're u- using food rewards, you can't do 30 trials in a row. Um, so we're trying to come up with creative ways to ask the same question across species in ways that are truly comparable. Um, which runs into issues of, did you just make it easier for the second species? So maybe you're more likely to find something. Did you, is it still too hard for the other species? Especially when you compare it to humans, did you give humans instructions? So they know what they're doing better than the a- animals do. Animals are working with non conspecific experimenters. So they're working with humans, whereas humans are working with another human being. So that automatically biases them to be better able to read the experimenter's intentions and mm. goals and so forth and probably be more comfortable with them. When we work with humans, we typically are sitting right up next to them. When you work with animals, especially if you're working with something large or dangerous, like say a lion, there's there's space between you and them. So you don't have that direct interaction, which gets back to Susanna's idea of touch. Um, There's a a serious physical distance, which probably translates into emotional and cognitive um, distance Mm -hmm. as well. So this can be done, but it's the sort of thing that takes an extraordinarily long time and ideally collaboration amongst multiple researchers working in multiple different areas with different species to try and come up with very similar paradigms. Um, Because I think that much like what I said with the sense of fairness, I suspect the roots of morality are very, very deep. Um, That doesn't mean we're going to to find the same things in every species, but we do need to do the same series of studies in as many species as possible Mm -hmm. so we can begin to understand what is unique to dogs or unique to elephants or unique to primates and what do you see in bees or, you know, cockatoos or whatnot. So there's lots of work to be done.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it seems like there's real tensions in this area when you try to design these experiments because there's this. Pressure to standardize, that you want to be giving the same tests to every species. And that comes into conflict with the pressure to actually tailor the tests to the ecological needs and context, not just of the species, but maybe even the particular individual and its idiosyncratic food preferences. Do you see any any way to escape that tension? Yeah,
1: well, yes, but no way that's fast. Um, So I always joke that this is a career and not a dissertation. Um, So I think that the way to do it is to try to first run very standardized tests across multiple species um, and use those results to make predictions about what you would expect in more ecologically relevant contexts and then go do the ecologically relevant study. Um, And then that's not perfect, but if the standardized test predicts one thing and you find something entirely different with the more ecologically relevant study, then that probably means you missed something somewhere. So then you can go back. Um, So you can use very standardized paradigms like a bar pull or economic games or whatnot to try and look at this across across as many species as you have access to and then see if that actually matches what you're seeing and then ideally also work with field workers so you can go see if we're actually seeing this in the wild i mean it's one thing to show that they have it it's another question whether Mm. or not it's a relevant behavior that manifests and how it manifests okay so they have a sense of fairness in the wild they are not trading tokens with experimenters for grapes so what sorts of situations would you expect to see this
0: It's this concept of ecological validity, isn't it? That we want what happens in the lab to be ecologically valid, to actually make sense in terms of providing insight into what's going on in the heads of the animals in the wild. Yep. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's this other tension as well, it seems, from what you're saying, that there's also this tension between, on the one hand, wanting to be detached you know, as an experimenter, keep your distance from the animals, be impartial, be unbiased, And at the same time, needing to actually bond with them and get to know them so that they actually do things for you and they do the tasks you set them.
1: They have to trust you. And honestly, if you don't really know your animals, you aren't going to know the interesting questions to ask. Um, so, for instance, with my Capuchin groups, my graduate students do observations, which are useful because we now have a non-biased measure of you know, how much time you know, Lily is spending with Lexi versus with Ren, and that's important, but it also makes sure that the students are spending lots of time watching the animals. Um, what sorts of questions are interesting? What are the best, if you have a different question, how are you, how best to answer it? What sorts of tasks are going to be easy for them? And what sorts of tasks are you going to spend so much time training them that you're not really confident that the results you got are valid? Um, so there is a strong need to really know the animals very well.
0: Let's bring Kristen in on this. I mean, Kristen, you've written two books about the methodology of animal minds research. What do you see as the, the biggest, toughest challenges?
2: Well, first, I'd like to just point out that a lot of what Sarah was describing as challenges exist for human research as well. And that is often not really well acknowledged. So concerns about ecological validity, whether what we're doing with humans in a lab translates to what humans do out in the wild um, is is of concern as well. And also We can't give the same task to all our research subjects, all of our human research subjects, because of age differences, developmental differences, cognitive differences and cultural differences. Um, So if we're going to give the same economic game to people who are in capitalist societies and non-capitalist societies, um, they're going to have to be um, modified and they are modified slightly so that we can try to make those relevant and um, engage with with the um, the people we're studying, also we have to have trust when we do this thing. So if you come in as an outsider into a small scale society and you're just like, okay, here's my, here's this thing I was doing with college students. Will you do it with me? you're probably not going to get very good results. So you have to work with local populations and so on. So it's not like this is um, a a problem that we haven't dealt with with humans. And and I think it's very important to realize we've got some ground um, covered. We figured out how to do this and to a certain extent, and we have techniques and we can use those techniques when we're um, asking questions about other species as well and make the tasks relevant and For that species, and recognize whether these differences in the tasks are are going to be um, variables that are potentially going to um, change the the results in a way that would be problematic, or if these are variables we're changing to make the task of interest um, and relevant to to the animal we're studying. Um, I I think that the theory of mind Mm -hmm. um, research program in non human animals is a great example of this. So there was this. You know, task that was developed for children and um, was the false belief task and then was just given versions of it given to apes. So it's an object who was was moved when someone wasn't looking. And can you predict um, where someone will go if they weren't looking when the object was moved? and you know humans can do that from the age of 4 and chimpanzees when they were given this sort of test they they didn't care about it <laughs> they don't care about objects moving but if you create a scenario where you have an aggressive encounter between two people and they're hiding and moving around that motivates the chimpanzee to pay attention and you know what was it like 30 years it took humans to be smart enough to figure out how to present the task to chimpanzees appropriately Um, Mm. so, so that's, that's one thing I'd say about, um, about, you know, the methods and the challenges for non-human animals, we've got some of those challenges for, uh, for humans as well.
0: I wonder what you think about how to make the science of animal minds reproducible or replicable. We had an event like this in the forum series about the replication crisis, where we were talking about how human psychology research has had all these problems replicating At least with humans, you know, there are more humans you can try the experiment on. Whereas with research on primates and great apes in particular, you're often you've you've got the ones you've got and you can't just go and reproduce the experiment with a completely new population. You could try, as as Sarah was saying, with a different species, but then people will say that's not a replication anymore. How does the, the field get out of that, do you think?
2: Well, I think Sarah already alluded to this, and that is collaborate with other labs and other researchers so that you have here, you know, you you put all your methods on the table and everybody shares it and everybody um, watches video of how the tasks are actually presented. So you can say, oh, no, I I do this subtly different thing when I present my materials so that all of those details are really transparent. And then you can you can see about replicating uh, across labs um, but I do think it's also really important to recognize we actually do have a lot of animals. There are a lot of non-human animals around. They're just not in captivity. Um, so there might be ways of studying them also non-invasively um, through observational methods, tagging methods, watching their movements, um, drones, using drones. There's lots of interesting technologies that we could we could use to study free-ranging free wild animals too. And I think that culture literature is a really good example of how this research can be done. Taking So this um, this question, do animals have culture, was a question that 20 years ago was really shocking. And people, you know, NPR had stories saying, ah, the National Public Radio in the U.S., sorry, like, oh, researchers have discovered that animals have culture. And everyone was outraged. You mean that they could have symphonies and museums? And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we mean by culture. Um, so, this concept of culture was analyzed, broken down, and then, um, and operationalized in various ways. And then researchers could go into, you know, extract the information they had from years of field research in order to see what were cultural differences in um, different populations of the same species, even species living in ecologically really similar contexts. And it's been extremely productive research program. So I think that the, the culture research is a really good model for the, the um, morality research. We can use that as a way of um, asking the question in a responsible um, and scientifically you know, productive way about whether animals are moral. Ooh.
0: Susanna, you've um, written on how to... Look for whether animals have a concept of death and I suppose whether they grieve. Uh, I mean, what are the main methodological challenges you faced?
3: Well, actually, this um, relates to a point I wanted to make because um, I think one final methodological challenge that Sarah and Kristen haven't mentioned um, is the ethical challenge. Um, so, how to study these questions ethically because um, I think some of the most compelling examples of animal morality come from anecdotes gathered in the field um, of rescue behavior or helping behavior. Um, So I I have in mind, for instance, this one paper where they describe a group of dolphins who's um, helping this dying dolphin stay afloat, helping him breathe by uh, forming a raft with their bodies this kind of a raft-like formation and keeping the dying dolphin um, afloat. Um, So that's kind of a very interesting behavior that's very difficult to explain without um, saying that the animals were acting um, morally in some way or another. Um, But of course it's very difficult to study in the lab, right? Um, And oops. Jonathan has disappeared. Never mind. <laughs> um my point was that um interestingly, these sorts of like rescue behaviors um have been done in the lab with animals um that we typically care less for, um, like rants, rats and ants. Right? There are some really cool rescue studies with these species. Um but we wouldn't do that with uh, chimpanzees. And well, Kristen and I have argued that we shouldn't be doing it with rats and we also maybe shouldn't be doing it with ants either. Um...
1: While well, we're waiting for uh, Jonathan to get back, actually Susanna, one interesting point is some of the best examples we see are these rescue cases. And yet when we study this sort of behavior, we typically do these sorts of positive things that I'm not sure, as someone who's done this research myself, I'm not confident they understood what the point was. And so we actually some of the best evidence we have from the lab is from rats and mice and ants and so forth and not from primates.
3: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because we dare to to put them in these horrible situations and um, then the others are really motivated and they maybe they understand the situation, what's going on better. While we wait for Jonathan to come back to us, uh, I will just temporarily take over his chair. And I'll use this opportunity to maybe take some of the uh, audience questions, if that's okay with
1: you guys. Great. Um, We have a great one here from Izzy. So she asks, um, do you think there's a risk that by comparing animal morality to human morality, the animals will always fall short and we end up furthering anthropocentrism?
3: Um, You know, that there might be wolf morality and uh, uh, prairie vole morality rather than various kinds of our morality that other animals maybe don't quite meet the mark on. Do you worry about that in your work? I do think it's, it's a worry. Um, But I also think that it, I think that the the kind of work we do mostly pulls in a, in a different direction, namely um, showing that there's a continuity between humans and animals. So even if, the questions you're asking are kind of anthropocentric in the sense that you are looking for human forms of morality in animals. You are at the same time also arguing or showing that there is a continuity across species. So I'm hoping that kind of compensates for the other.
1: In my experience, I think a lot of times it depends on how you interpret the data because what we're actually looking for is these continuities but people can sometimes see it as a lack of continuity. Oh, well, you know, that makes capuchins different or rats different or ants different. So therefore, it is OK to do what we're doing with them. So I think it can be a concern. And part of it is, I think, our responsibility to make it clear that what we're looking at is this sort of underlying component of fairness or morality or whatever we're studying. That doesn't make them less good. It just makes them different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everything, the answer- everything all
0: right? I had a momentary outage there but I'm sure yeah I'm sure uh, question
1: from the field so Kristen I think was going to say something quickly (laughs) yeah I was just
2: going to say that I think that anthropocentrism is maybe more of a methodological challenge than a worry about outcomes because there is such diversity in what morality is among humans as well so I mean even if you walk into an intro ethics philosophy class you'll see the philosophers are all fighting about what ethics is um so, yeah, it might help us recognize diversity among humans more to see that there are different kinds of moralities in different species, too. That's the hope.
0: Yeah. I don't think you need me really anyway. I think I'm like the conductor in an orchestra where if the conductor just walked off, would it really make any difference? I don't know. But anyway, we're, we're going on to um, to morality anyway, uh, to... to uh, our moral obligations towards animals and how they might be affected by the realization that animals themselves have a sense of morality. In particular, there's this fascinating question of are some animals people? Are they persons? Which is not to say are they humans, but are they a different kind of person? Kristen, that's something you've, been weighing in on uh, recently with with the Philosopher's Brief on chimpanzee personhood. How do you see these issues as relating? The question of whether chimpanzees are persons and the question of whether they have a sense of morality?
2: So I think that you don't need to have a sense of um, morality to be a person. I think that um, a person is someone who is an individual who has certain sorts of desires and interests. And because they have desires and interests and values, there's a certain kind of um, respect that we must give to the fact that they have these interests and values and and so on. Um, Most humans, adult humans are persons and moral agents. Um, but there are a lot of humans who aren't. So children are a <laughs> clear example, right? Don't tell a three-year-old that they're not a person. They're very much a person, mm-hmm. um, but we don't hold them morally responsible for their their norm violations. We see instead that we're in a pedagogical relationship with them. We're trying to teach them um, how to be a moral agent when they start to get the cognitive capacities to, to fulfill uh, moral agency. And we also see um, some adults who we would consider to be a person, but not a moral agent, someone we wouldn't hold morally responsible, perhaps because they have dementia or some Mm. other sort of cognitive um, issues. Yeah.
0: So what do you think the case for thinking of some animals as persons rests on then if it's not their capacity for morality?
2: Yeah. So like I said, that they have um, interests and values. That, that there are things that they care about mm. is really what it boils down to. So in the philosopher's brief that I co-authored with um, a bunch of other philosophers, some who are in this um, audience right now, um, we, we argued that there are lots of different ways of thinking about persons and uh, there's no big agreement about what a person is. But on all of these ways of thinking about persons, chimpanzees mm. are persons. Um, and we were doing this in part to support um, a, um, a, a lawsuit, for lack of a better term, um, arguing for um, chimpanzee personhood uh, legal status mm-hmm. in, in the United States.
0: This is the non-human rights project, isn't it? This project to try and get chimpanzees released from, I guess, fairly unpleasant captive conditions.
2: That's correct.
0: And what's your view on this uh sarah that you know you've worked a lot with uh, with primates in captivity so you must sort of see both sides i suppose both the um the case for thinking of them as as people with rights like us and also potentially some of the uh the downsides to thinking they have rights
1: yeah i mean I- The question of whether we have a moral obligation to treat them well is to me completely independent of whether or not we grant them personhood in the legal sense, not because I don't think we should grant them rights or whatnot. Um, But part of it is that what we would consider a moral obligation comes with responsibilities, comes with rights and so forth, that differently from a child or a person with dementia, these, these individuals When interacting with us, which I specify is different than when interacting with each other, um, we can't expect them to have because they aren't us. So we can't expect a chimpanzee to interact with us on our terms. Um, I mean, even independently of whether or not we can sit down and explain to them. I mean, they lack language, so we can't have a long term conversation with them. Um, but to some degree, that's just as inappropriate as assuming that your culture should dictate how other people from other cultures are living their lives and pursuing their um, their moral obligations. And if you watch them interact with each other, they, they, I mean, it certainly looks like they have rules and norms and expectations about one another, how they should act with one another. Again, we see these anecdotes that occur a lot where You have a, you know, a chimpanzee male who is too aggressive and attack and an attack against a juvenile male who has uh, violated some norm, usually mating with a female. And eventually the other group members sort of band together and stop it. And. It is true that the plural of anecdote is not data, but it is also true that when you see enough of these things, you start wondering what's really going on. And it's not something that we could ethically test. I mean, Whether or not we could test something like that in the lab, most of us wouldn't. Um, So we're not going to be able to get those empirical data. So in that sense, it is very clear that they have at least some norms and rules and expectations for each other. Um, But to me, that's independent of how we should interact with them. Um, And the the responsibilities thing is big because I don't think it is fair to expect them to take on the same responsibility as us. Mm. Um, And similarly, I don't think we can judge them for doing something that we don't approve of um, because they, they shouldn't have, they shouldn't be expected to be us, which you are implicitly assuming if you're judging them.
0: So they could have rights without responsibilities. Yes. What do you think, Susanna? Do you think, um, do you agree with this consensus from Kristen and Sarah that chimpanzees are <laughs> persons?
3: Um, yeah, I I agree with them that this is a question that's independent of the topic of animal morality, that you can be a person without being moral. Um, however, I do think, and um, together with my colleagues, and Judith van Schwarzburg, which I believe are in the audience, we have done a lot of work um, trying to defend the idea that there are certain um, obligations that follow from the fact that animals are moral. Namely, they, they follow from the fact that if you're moral, there are certain ways in which you can be wronged, that you can't be wronged if you're not moral. And these have to do with the fact that um, caring for others, we believe, is something that is intrinsically valuable. So being a caring person is something that is intrinsically valuable. And certain practices um, that involve animals um, involve us interfering with their caring capacities and somehow thwarting them, um, either because we don't allow these capacities to be exercised, um, so, think about um, i don 't know animals in the lab or in farms who might be witnessing other animals in distress but who are prevented from intervening or consoling that animal in any way. so these animals have caring capacities, but we 're not allowing them to exercise them but in other cases, we can even um, see humans actively taking these caring capacities away from animals. So this is something, for instance, that we see in, um, in lab studies uh, with uh, rats, especially, where um, scientists, well, they found empathy in rats. And so now they now that they've found empathy in the rats, they are thinking that they can use this to they, they can use them as models to study certain um psychopathologies. And so what they do is that they actively tinker with the rats um, empathy to turn them into psychopaths or callous rats. And we argue that the, the animals here are being wronged in a way that's not captured um, solely in terms of welfare. And that has to do with the fact mm. that being a caring individual is something intrinsically valuable.
0: Right, that if a person was diminished like that, you know, deliberately turned into a psychopath, we'd see that as an ethical problem. And you say we, we should when it's rats.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: Mm. I mean, Christian, where where do you think this ends? I mean, if if personhood and its associated rights is about caring for things and valuing things, we'll soon be moving from chimpanzees to, to rats, along the lines of what Susanna was saying, but then also from rats to fish, insects, octopuses. It, is there anything in the animal kingdom that is then not a person on this view?
2: I think that the default should be, let's start by assuming that they're persons, um, and treat these, these organisms appropriately to being persons. Now, this doesn't mean that, that medical testing, for example, can't be done, can't be ethically justified. Um, those are moral arguments, weighing costs and value and and benefits and thinking about universalizing maxims and thinking about all sorts of things that ethicists talk about. But if the non-human animals, the, the bumblebees and the ants and the mosquitoes, as well as the dogs and the dolphins and, and corvids and chimpanzees, if they're not considered persons, then they're just like, they're just like money. They're just like, You know costs of acquiring the organisms as things like the materials Mm -hmm. to build the apparatus and they should never be thought of that way and they should always be thought of as individuals that have some concern and this is why there are ethics boards for animal research now the ethics boards um, the laws vary from country to country but some species are excluded from review um, of these experiments and i think that we should just include We should include the cockroaches that some people are now studying because in some jurisdictions they don't have to go through ethics review. So they're a cheap and easy way to teach students learning behavior. Because guess what? Cockroaches learn things. (laughs) Who would have known it? Well, we study it. We figure it out. And there we go. Um, They should all all species should be covered by ethics review if we're going to if we're going to um, do research on them.
0: All animal species? Or do yep. you go even further? Are the microbiologists okay?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, because I don't have any expertise in that area, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on that. Um, and the same goes for plants. I just don't have um, expertise in that area. But I think that it's not a silly question to ask. And that um, is—that's even a radical claim, I think, to say it's not a silly question to ask. My students used to ask me things like that when I would talk about chimpanzees twenty years ago, when I started teaching this. They'd say, "Wait, what about plants and what about bees?" And I'd say, "Oh, you're ridiculous. That's so silly." And so, at least I, for me, it's been a transformation um, in thinking Mm -hmm. that no, maybe we have to, you know, maybe I need to be more consistent and say. I just don't know enough about those other kinds of organisms to answer the
0: question. I I agree. It's definitely not a silly question to ask in relation to bees. Yeah. I mean, my foundations of animal sentience project is, is partly premised on that not being a silly question to ask about bees plants. I'm not so sure. I think if, if plant science had to go through ethical review, no one would have any idea how to conduct that ethical review. Um,
2: Well, before Lars Chitka came up with what he taught us about bees, you might have said the same thing about bees. I think we just have to follow the science. And instead of saying, well, there's somebody who wrote this paper about the precautionary principle. I, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Jonathan Birch. Anyway, I think that the right thing to do in the case of all of the organisms, all of the animal species is to say, let's start with the assumption that they're persons. And if we find out otherwise, then okay, great. We don't have to do ethics review with them anymore. Mm. Um,
0: That's a different yeah. precautionary principle to the one I was advocating. But I know. it is a, yeah, it is a precautionary approach taken further. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're going to turn to audience questions now. And um, please type any questions you have in the Q&A box. And we'll see how many we can get to. We might not be able to get to All of them. So, let's see. Do you think there are any potential negative issues in people seeing non-human animals as moral beings? It's mentioned at the start that it might improve how people treat animals, but I wonder if it could do the opposite. For example, I see many posts on social media demonising birds of prey or other carnivorous birds for killing other animals, calling them vicious, nasty, evil, etc., You do hear that sometimes, don't you? This idea that there's something bad about predators and that maybe we should try to reduce the number of predators in the world. Uh, Who would like to respond to that?
3: Um, I think think that there can be something bad about predators without it having to imply that we should do something about predation. I think those are two separate questions. And I I do think that, well, I have um, a view of morality that or of animal morality that includes both positive and negative um, aspects of morality. And I do think that predation can sometimes incorporate certain motivations that we would describe as moral. So certain cruel motivations, uh, prolonging the the suffering of the prey on purpose or um, that that could be the case. I'm I'm not certain, but I, I think it's a possibility. And that would mean that some instances of predation would qualify as moral, but that it doesn't mean that we should do something about it. Um,
0: I always think orcas present this dilemma, don't they? I mean, they're the most wonderful telegenic animals, and they also seem unbelievably brutal.
3: Yes, and they seem to kill for pleasure they seem to sometimes kill other animals just for the sake of it. And they do things like play football with their body parts and, uh, things like that. Um, so yeah, I think we, we, if we're talking about animal morality, we might have to also say that there is morality there. So immorality, uh, um, immorality. Yeah. Mm. Um, a distinction that I like, that I find useful, I think Kristen is not too fond of it, but it's a distinction that I um, uh, do find useful is this distinction by Mark Rowlands between moral subjects and moral agents, uh, where a moral subject would be an individual who behaves or sometimes behaves on the basis of moral motivations. So an individual whose behavior we can de- describe as moral and a moral agent would be um, an individual who is morally responsible for her actions. So all moral agents are moral subjects, but not necessarily vice versa. So when we say that predation is uh, moral or immoral, what we're saying is that some predators are moral subjects that they can behave on the basis of moral motivations, but it doesn't necessarily follow that they're moral agents and that they're morally responsible for their behavior. Although I Mm. do like, I know Kristen, well, maybe she can jump in, but I think that she prefers the term moral agent because she likes to think of this as like being part of the the agency of the animal. But I think moral agency can also be construed as a spectrum um, where um, animals don't, like animals can maybe inhabit like the the first stages of the spectrum, but maybe um, not the later ones. And it's in the later ones where I think you would attach a punishment to, for instance.
2: Yeah, I also think that punishment isn't the only correct response to what is taken to be a moral violation. And so I've often had people say, well, but if animals are moral agents, then we should punish them when they violate their, um, you know, when they violate moral norms. And my my initial response is, why should we, vi- why should we, pun- why should I punish them? All right? There are lots of humans I won't punish because it's not my place to punish them. There's a lot more, um, thinking about social connections and community that has to go on if you, if you want to say that any human has, uh, um, is in the position to intervene and punish a non-human animal. If the animal is also part of your house, so go back to the dogs who pooped in the house, right? If you, um, you could punish that dog if you wanted to, but it's not going to make the dog stop pooping in the house. What you want to do to, um, achieve that goal is use positive reinforcement. You want to teach them. And so this is another thing that we do when we are working with members of our community who violate norms. We don't always just throw them in prison and lock them away and, um, so on. Sometimes we try to help them and rehabilitate them and, and, um, make individuals um, a member of the community again. And then, but also I think it's important, I don't know, I like science fiction. um, And so I I often think when I'm thinking about, you know, species who, that might, for example, do things that we find abhorrent or I find abhorrent, um, like kill for pleasure, I think about Klingons. (laughs) And I don't know how many of you watch Star Trek, but, you know, Klingons, I want to say they have their they have a moral system. Um, they talk about it a lot. They don't always seem to live up to it themselves. though. I've, like, I'm kind of a little puzzled by that, actually. But it's not the it's not the case that like the humans will go and say, oh, Klingon, you violated my human moral um, belief. And so I'm going to come in and punish you for it. I think that we need to be a little bit more open minded for the fact that these are systems of how to live and that there can mm-hmm. be um consistent um, multiple systems.
0: That's an interesting thought. Yeah, do you I, think what you know this evidence of animal morality is supportive of moral relativism then? Because it certainly seems on the face of it to going to make it very difficult to defend a universal morality that applies across species and not just across human cultures.
2: I do. Uh, yeah, I think there's some really interesting um, meta-ethical implications to this work, which is why I, I want to encourage philosophers to pay attention to this this research.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think the problem with judging a predator is that you're judging a predator by human norms, and they're not humans. I mean, they, they had well, humans are predators too, but um, you have to be careful to make sure that the uh, you have to be careful to make sure that you are taking into account the biology and the ecological niche and so forth of the animal. And even if we find it distasteful, it, it's, it may not be our place to judge and certainly not our place to intervene. And I think that's one of the things that is very difficult is recognizing that you know the pictures of the orcas with the seals are awful. Those videos are really, really difficult to watch. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's morally wrong if you're an orca
0: one of the questions here is are we seeing anything at the core of the moralities of different species that is constant across species that's uh, it bears on what we're just saying doesn't it i'm intrigued by this apparent disagreement between susanna and sarah about the orcas you know we've got the view that they're behaving completely morally by the standards of the orca community versus no there is something that transcends different species and, and allows us to grasp the idea that some of the things an orca might do might be morally wrong. So Susanna, you do think there's maybe something that can be said cross species.
3: Um, I, I think that it, I'm, I wouldn't exactly say that it's cross species. I think that from a human point of view, Like, it's not that different if we're saying this rescue behavior is moral, this predatory behavior is immoral. Um, We're in both cases judging certain motivations according to um, certain standards. Um, So it's true that the animals themselves might not judge it that way or might not have that norm. But um, for me, it's a way of... um, So the way I understand my work is about looking at the motivations and the capacities that underlie animal behavior and trying to say, well, if we would consider it moral or immoral in the human case, why do we not call it that way in the human Mm. case, in the animal case, sorry.
0: Yeah, we should have called this event, who's a bad orca, I think. (laughs) So his... There's a question about third-party punishment. Some have argued that the roots of moral thought can be observed in third-party punishment where individuals punish a transgressor or norm-violator even when they themselves are not directly in, uh, affected. Certainly that third-party enforcement seems to be a very common feature of human social norms. So what are the speaker's views about this as a behavioural marker of moral obligations? What do you think, Sarah? Sarah?
1: Yeah, so I think if you see third-party punishment, it probably implies underlying norms or social rules or whatever we want to call them um, that qualify as a moral rule. Um, that, that implies an ought because it's not necessarily in my benefit. I mean, even in situations where, say, an alpha male does policing, which in the long run benefits the male by having a nice stable social group and everyone's getting along, that still suggests that there is an ought, how other individuals ought to behave. I would be, I would however say that I don't think third party punishment is necessary to say that there are at least underpinnings of moral behavior or behaviors that are tied, you know, tied into the evolution of moral behavior. Um, Because I think, for instance, you could see sympathy towards others. I mean, we see lots of species that are social towards show sympathy towards others in their group, maybe not out of their group and maybe not other species, which is why we have to be really careful not to fall into the trap of, you know other people are doing that. It, therefore it's okay with us. That doesn't, that's not, that is definitely not okay. Um. But we see other, or other sorts of moral behaviors that probably are pretty consistent, paying attention to the well-being of others, um, even the more sort of negative moral behaviors, like fairness, I'm judging what I should get based on what you got, that's still attention to others. So these sorts of um, standardized social rules that help the smooth functioning of the social group and provide this sort of basis for how the group's behavior form, I think those are all basic moral rules and you don't need third party punishment um, to, in order to have these sort of baseline norms
0: Mm hmm Mm. here's another question is there a worry that experiments with biological rewards by which i suppose they mean food peanuts and bits of fruit and things like that could miss something important in understanding animal social behavior in the case of human children lab-based experiments sometimes cause a decrease in intrinsic motivation I suppose what, what children often find incredibly motivating is social rewards, social approval from people they actually know and like. And it leads to the thought that, you know, are better rewards available in the wild, like uh, tickling in rats. What do you think, Sarah?
1: Um, absolutely. And the reason we use food rewards is not because we think they're the best thing, but it's because it's a standardized way to do it. And and it's also ethical. I mean, I can't offer up estrus females as a reward. (laughs) so (laughs) uh, It's much like when you study humans, we use food, uh, we use money, which we consider the most fungible reward or stickers for little kids. and, and we know that that's not what they're behaving for in the wild. Um, there's actually for some of these species remarkably little food sharing, which suggests that it's really not necessarily the the best reward. Um, But some of the other things would either be very challenging to study or unethical. So that's back to this idea of we try to standardize it in the lab, see what we see. And then, I mean, I work with social groups and these are intact social groups. Um, So they've been together, most of them their entire lives. So then you watch the animals and see if you see situations in which these sorts of similar sorts of behaviors are occurring in natural environment. Then you can expand to looking in the fields. There are some field experiments that are ethical as well. Um, So there are certainly ways to test that. But no, I mean, food is not the food is not. As I said earlier in the wild, they are not trading tokens with rewards with humans in order to get Mm. the grapes. So (laughs) it's just the best available thing. This is the way we sort of simplify it down so that we can ask these controlled questions and tweak variables.
0: Yeah. that food is is ethical, but also controllable, that the amounts can be fixed and. The relative value of different rewards can be easily fixed, whereas with social stuff, it, it suddenly it's all out of the experimenter's control, basically. Yep. Mm.
1: And I know that they really like grapes, so we can offer them grapes.
0: <laughs> all right, Christian, we've um, y- y- you've kicked the hornet's nest of metaethics, so we've got these metaethics. <laughs> Questions coming in. I'm a bit puzzled about why morality would be species relative, but not individual relative. How would we defend this idea of morality for the orca without this turning into morality for this orca? How could you know, why aren't we just relativizing to individual animals?
2: Well, I think this goes back to um, two questions ago, um, whether there's anything that might be core to morality across species um, and I think that there might be, and I, and also it relates to the third party punishment question, because that might be something that's core to morality across species. And I don't think it, that need be, um, I, I think that this emphasis on punishment in the literature is kind of tells us more about the humans who are studying <laughs> in this field than, um, uh, than anything else. Um, because, you know, there are other ways of managing norm violators and an immoral action, that might actually be more beneficial. But so if we go back to, to the question, it might be that trust among individuals is something that's really core to morality. We might find that this is what's um, important across species and that's, that gets into all of this care and concern for others. Um, you're not going to be able to have a system of norms unless there is something there, like trust, I think, between individuals. Yes. Uh, and so that's not going to be relativized potentially but what would be relativized would be what are the norms right or what are the conventions that this society has to let it function well and the conventions right you might have uh, an or- an organism or a, s- a species I should say might've had multiple choices and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of um, anthropomorphizing evolutionary processes here, but there might've been multiple ways a species could go in order to find conventions that work that help them live together in a way that in which their groups function and what the way the convention that has arisen is going to then be solidified potentially into a norm and that norm when it's violated, might, there might be reparative actions, there might be punishment actions, um, but it all starts from this desire to live together and to trust other individuals. So I think that you're not going to get any kind of radical individual um, relativism here, but you're going to get group relativism based on the way you solve your social li- learning, social living problems um, with what conventions you've adopted in your society.
0: Brings me back to that example of octopuses. That do you think then that? The moral, the normative, all of that stuff is really something we find in social animals. And that if an animal is solitary, like the vast majority of octopuses, it just couldn't develop that side of mental life. Or do you think there might be such a thing as solitary morality?
2: Is that for me? I think. I guess so. <laughs> there are two answers. There are two ways of answering that question. Um, one is that. Octopuses, although they're described as solitary, might be social in their own octopus way. Um, you know, so some some humans are really social in a very different way from the way I'm social. Um, and species don't have to all show their sociality by hanging out together all the time. Um, so that's one thing to say. Uh, second thing to say is that um, that. The model that I just described might be one, you know, so there might be multiple ways, cores to morality and the social core, the social way might be just one. And that's an open question in my mind.
0: All right. I think probably time for one more question. There's a question that is about visas and citizenship, which I think, We've been entertaining some pretty radical ideas in terms of your view, Kristen, that we should assume all animals are persons uh, by default. Um, one of the more radical ideas out there in the sort of animal rights world is this idea from the, the Donaldson and Kimlicka book, Zoopolis, that actually we should be thinking of animals as citizens and that they should have various citizenship rights um, which might conceivably include sort of freedom of movement rights and things like that. Do you see any merit in that, or is it taking this idea of animal rights in the wrong direction? Should we put that to Sarah? What do you do you, what do you think? Do you think your your primates are citizens? Do you think they should be citizens? Is
1: that a good Question because I don't see how they would function in the world that we have. So for instance, natural chimpanzee behavior when they are threatened is to attack and we're not going to change that and yet we can't have chimps running around and attacking people on the subway because that would be that violates the rights of the people who are getting attacked and so it becomes a really tricky question to me there's a very very big difference between our moral obligation to treat animals well and the need for citizenship Um, Because I think you can easily cross over that line where in granting the animals their rights, you then impinge on the rights of other individuals, maybe not just humans, too. I mean, they also are meat eaters, so they might eat your pet cat. Um, And so that becomes a really difficult question. And I don't think that that the chimp would be responsible for their actions in that case either, because they're not a human. So this gets back to this idea of moral relativism, which I don't actually think it, it, it's a relativism based on the intrinsic biology of the species in question, not on some, you know, we're going to shift it around for whatever is convenient for us today sort of uh, subjectivity. Um, and so I really don't think we could hold them responsible either. And that that is a different sort of question about citizenship. Um, we certainly have people who we at least for time periods, think that we have the right to take away some of their freedoms as well, and whether we should or not is an open question. Um, I happen to agree with Kristen that I think there are better ways than punishment most of the time, um, but it's it, it's become a, it's a much trickier issue than just asking about the chimpanzees, but I don't think that just that saying we shouldn't give them citizenship is the same as saying that we don't have a moral obligation to make sure that they're treated well, that they are not in horrible circumstances, they shouldn't be taken advantage of and so forth.
0: What do you think, Kristin? Citizenship for animals?
1: Yeah, well, so I think that uh,
2: Donaldson and Kimlicka's proposal is really interesting. And just to clarify, the claim isn't that all persons should be citizens. Um, It's much more nuanced than that. And they're looking at different political statuses for different sorts of animals. So the animals that live in our homes, like our pets, would get kind of much, much higher of a status than a chimpanzee who lived in a zoo um, or a chimpanzee who lived in the wild in Africa because they are not part of our community in the same way my dog is who lives with me and sleeps in my bed. Like <laughs> that what they want to say is when you're considering what to do, when you're considering as a say family, what to do, whether to travel, what kind of house to buy, you should take your dog's <laughs> interests into account as well as the humans, right? That they also um, should matter in this, you know, very local political decision that you're making. Um, I don't see any value in asking whether um, chimpanzees or any animal should be a citizen. Um, it's, it's like asking, it, it's a category mistake. Um, and it's a bit of a distraction, I think, um, to ask about visas and, 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 and so on for chimpanzees or other, other species at this point. Now, aliens, if the, if the Klingons come down, that's another question. <laughs>
0: Okay, thanks very much. That's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Uh, So thanks very much to everyone attending this uh, and and for all of your questions. My apologies if we didn't get a chance to get to your question. And thanks very much to all of our panellists, Christian Andrews, Sarah Brosman, Susanna Monceau, for a really fascinating discussion. Thanks very much.